everyone and welcome to the third instalment in our podcast series on managing tricky collective redundancy issues against the backdrop of COVID-19. I'm Jean Lovett, I'm a partner in the employment and incentives team here at Linklaters and I'm joined for this podcast by my colleague Rachel Morgan. Hello Rachel. Hi Jean. Just a quick recap of what we've covered in the previous two podcasts. In the first we talked about the duty to consult collectively and when that was triggered. And in the second, we discussed the practical issues around conducting collective consultation with a furloughed workforce. Today with Rachel, we're going to be focusing on fairness and in particular tricky issues that may arise regarding redundancy selection in the collective process when you've got a wholly or partly furloughed workforce. So lots to get your teeth into today. So first of all, Rachel, uh, can you explain the employer's obligations regarding selection and why a fair selection process is so important in a redundancy process? Sure. So, as we mentioned in our first podcast, when considering redundancies, employers need to be aware of both individual and collective employment rights. In terms of individual rights, employees with more than two years continuous employment have the right to protection from unfair dismissal. In addition, as discussed in earlier podcasts, Collective consultation obligations are triggered where the statutory thresholds regarding numbers of affected employees are met. When collective consultation is triggered, the Section 188 duty requires the employer to consult with reps about the proposed method of selecting the employees who may be dismissed. Unless the entire business or an entire site, business line or function is being shut down, such that all the roles are being made redundant, there will be a need to select roles for redundancy. Thanks, Rachel. Actually, one other thing to add to that is I know that some of the things you're likely to touch on concern um, discrimination issues. Now, actually, mm -hmm. for discrimination issues, there's no two year qualifying period, is there? So that's uh, another that's thing right. for people to keep in mind, um, which will go towards a sort of fair treatment point. Definitely. So what are the consequences for employers if the selection criteria aren't consulted on, as you have just suggested? So a failure to collectively consult with employee reps on the method of selection can give rise to claims for failure to inform and consult. And as we've mentioned before, this can give rise to a potential liability of up to 90 days full pay per employee. So it is a significant sum. It's also important to flag that in addition to complying with the Section 188 obligations, a fair selection process is necessary to mitigate against the risk of unfair dismissal or discrimination claims. And those can be bought by individuals as a result of their individual selection for redundancy. Employers should therefore take care to ensure that the selection criteria are objective and that they're not directly or indirectly discriminatory. Once an employer has identified those objective selection criteria, employers will then need to identify a relevant pool of employees. In other words, those employees who perform the same or a sufficiently similar role that pool of employees will then be placed at risk of redundancy and the selection criteria is then applied to decide which of these employees will be retained in the business and who will be made redundant. Thanks. Can you give some examples of what objective selection criteria would typically be? Sure. So typically redundancy selection criteria may include objective performance measures such as appraisal ratings or performance against targets. It can also include the skills required for the available roles, as well as attendance and disciplinary records. Okay, thanks. Where you have a situation where part of the workforce is already on fur furlough, 
could an employer simply select those employees who've been on furlough for redundancy? What do you think about that sort of approach? No, I think employers should be extremely wary of that approach and doing so is likely to expose the employer to a risk of claims. Firstly, the requirements of the business in recent months to ensure it was best able to manage during the lockdown period are unlikely to be the same as what's required to run that business on a forward-looking basis. Secondly, even if that was to be the case, the process for deciding which employees were placed on furlough, if indeed there was any selection process followed at all, is likely to have taken into account a number of factors that just would be inappropriate to use as redundancy selection criteria. For example, some employees may have been furloughed or requested to be placed on furlough because of a medical condition, because they were pregnant, or because they had childcare responsibilities. So automatically selecting such individuals for redundancy on the basis that they've been furloughed, whether it was at the employer's request or because of their personal circumstances, could clearly lead to discrimination and unfair dismissal claims. Yeah, understood. Another question flows from that really. Can, indeed should, an employer use the same selection criteria for all employees where some have been on furlough and some haven't been on furlough? Is there not a risk that those who have been on furlough will be disadvantaged in a scoring exercise, given that they've been out of the business for a substantial period of time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the selection criteria will need to be carefully thought about in order to deal with this issue. The same selection criteria across the full population can and ideally should be used from a fairness perspective, as using two different sets of selection criteria could give rise to discrimination and procedural unfairness claims. However, careful thought does need to be given to what those criteria are and what they measure, because certain adjustments might need to be made to take account of any disadvantage that may have been suffered by those who have been out of the business on furlough. Yeah, I see. And then I suppose what you also need to do is consider the situation of those who've continued to work and how selection criteria could disadvantage them. So I can see, for example, that if you have struggled on trying to do your job, um, through the pandemic, working from home where, you, you know, it's not easy for you to work from home um, and where various aspects of your business and maybe your clients' businesses have been affected, actually you might have struggled to meet your targets due to the impact of the, of the market conditions. Um, or maybe your performance has fallen off, or maybe you've been struggling to deal with other responsibilities such as care for dependents. Yeah, that's right. So. The impact of the selection criteria will need to be considered across the whole pool of employees, those who have been working as well as those who've been on furlough. Yeah, that, I can see that that would be the fairest approach. Um, can you give me an example of what selection criteria could be used then and um, how they might be impacted? Of course. Um, so if performance is one of the criteria being used, you may need to consider using ratings from a previous performance review. Um, for any employees that have been on furlough and therefore not had an up-to-date performance meeting. Taking another example, if you're considering sales figures or other targets which are measured over time, you should think about the time period that's being used and make adjustments if necessary. This is to ensure there's no disadvantage to those who've been on furlough during that period and therefore weren't able to contribute. On the other hand, for those who may have continued to work during the crisis, sales may have been significantly depressed through no fault of their own. Alternatively, if an employee's absence record is being used as selection criteria, 
furlough leave shouldn't be included and that should be discounted in the same way as any periods of disability related absence. In addition, it's unlikely to be appropriate to discount any period of absence where the employee was required to take time off work because they were self-isolating in accordance with the guidelines from the government or due to any absence arising from suffering symptoms of COVID-19 itself. It does sound like selection is actually going to be much more difficult in the coming months given all these complications. Agreed. So question along a similar sort of theme. What about where employees have made changes to their working arrangements as a result of COVID-19? For example, they've reduced their hours or changed their working patterns. Um, can these be taken into account as part of the process? It is difficult to see how reduced hours or working patterns could feature in selection criteria without being potentially discriminatory. However, these could feature in the question of whether or not someone should be included within a particular pool for redundancy selection. For example, if someone had agreed to do a different role on a temporary basis during lockdown, or if an employee had temporarily adjusted their hours, for example, they may have changed to working night shifts as a result of their childcare responsibilities, and the business has now decided that it no longer requires these roles, you should be careful not to automatically include individuals within that pool if they're only carrying out those roles on a temporary basis. However, it should be noted that such a pooling exercise may be unfair in any event, regardless of any temporary changes that have arisen as a result of COVID-19. It's important that you widen a selection pool to include not just the individuals who are currently carrying out those roles, but also any others within the business who would be capable of doing that role. And what about employees who aren't able or aren't willing to return from work uh, after a period of furlough? Could that be used as a basis to select those employees for redundancy? This is something I see that should be dealt with uh, separately from the redundancy process. So as we've discussed in our previous COVID-19 podcasts and webinars, if an employee has given a lawful and reasonable instruction to return to the workplace, and they're providing a safe working environment in accordance with the government guidelines and health and safety legislation, then employees could potentially be subject to disciplinary action for a refusal to return to work. However, there does need to be some flexibility here and employers should consider their other duties, such as the duty to make reasonable adjustments for disabled employees and the fundamental duty of trust and confidence. So whilst it's important to also note the government advice on shielding ended on the 1st of August, any employees who were required to shield are almost certain to receive protection under the Equality Act in respect of disability, age, or perhaps maternity discrimination. So employers will therefore need to carefully consider what steps they can take to accommodate the concerns of these employees. And a blanket instruction for all employees to return now that shielding has ended is likely to expose them to risk of discrimination claims. So Rachel, you actually, um raised quite a topical issue in relation to the uh, shielding uh, advice ending on the 1st of August. I would recommend strongly to all employers that they do keep a co close eye on government guidance, because obviously in the last few weeks, we have seen a number of spikes in uh, cases and local responses to those spikes. And it may be that government guidance or indeed local guidance does change from time to time. Just as a point of reference, we're recording this on the 6th of August, uh, and that, this is the time when we've had a number of spikes. Yes, it's certainly something that you need to take a 
proactive approach to and you may need to change your position at, at short notice. Rachel I can see that you can conduct your selection process you could do it exactly by the book but the, you then have a practical problem in that a significant proportion of the people you want to keep are still unable or unwilling to return to work. Yes that's right I agree Jean I think that's a real practical risk. One way to mitigate against some of this could potentially be to offer voluntary redundancies prior to carrying out a selection process. There is, of course, no obligation on employees to volunteer for redundancy, even if they would be unwilling to return to work. And as with any other voluntary redundancy programmes, careful consideration would also need to be given to the risks that could arise from the best performing or the key employees from taking up that option. For example, you might want to retain a right to refuse those applications that are made. So thanks, Rachel. In relation to voluntary redundancies, I absolutely agree that it's always really important for an employer to reserve the right to refuse to accept someone's application for voluntary redundancy. Um, certainly in my discussions with clients, usually their key concern about voluntary redundancy is that the very people they're desperate to keep will want to be made redundant. Well, thank you, Rachel, for your uh, insights on what are actually quite complicated employment law issues. And thank you to everyone who's listened to this podcast. If you've got any questions about the issues we've addressed, please do, please do get in touch with me or Rachel or one of your usual contacts in our team. In the final of our series of four podcasts, we're going to be discussing issuing notice and termination payments. And we will be covering the new regulations that have just been released on notice and redundancy payments.